Hello and welcome back to All My Darlings, where we are reading Harp Song for a Radical, The Life and Times of Eugene Victor Debs by Marguerite Young. Oops. Oh, I have quite a spread. Um, I've uh, recommended Sabrosa Tea out of Sandusky, Ohio, and I got another tea company called the Ohio Tea Company out of Canton. And I got a couple of teas from them. I'm trying the first one I bought from them called a Witch's Brew. It's really good. It's a very tasty tea. And of the samples they give out to you, um, I like trying all different kinds of blends and like whatever people come up with. That's the reason that Sobrosa's really good. Although I, I, there's only so much you can do <laughs> with, with tea. I get it. Excuse me. So sometimes Sobrosa's different blends end up kind of tasting the same. Um, my f a favorite has been Hansel and Gretel, which I need to buy a bunch of. Their Sazerac is really good. So I'm uh, interested in trying their other alcohol themed teas. I don't drink alcohol, but I just think it's cool that they're having alcohol themed teas. And I just want to try them. The Sazerac was really good. Um, some of their cake teas are really good. Everything I've, got, I've gotten from them is really good. Um, I've just known, noticed that the fruity ones tend to taste fruity. Although the banana split one was really good. Really liked that one. The, it was very tasty. But this Witch's Brew is the first time I've tried Ohio Tea Company uh, out of Canton. And just right off the bat, it's very good. And I have my sugar-free cookies and my little tea tray, so I'm set. We are on page 98, chapter 30. If you are following along with the um, paper pills, read along of the book. We are on the last chapter for October 5th. And no promises. I will try, and as it's five chapters, I could finally do math. I figured out she'd broken it up into five chapters. Um, per day. So no promises uh, that the podcast will be able to keep up with that schedule, but I will try. I'll give it a good try. And then if I fall by the wayside, I fall by the wayside. So this is another fairly longish chapter. Usually the chapters are really pretty short. But yeah, this is a fairly long chapter. And then we go back to some, I don't know. They seem to... No, no, no. They're about the same. Yeah. So the chapter 20 now is fairly long. This one's another fairly... One, two, two and a half pages just for this book is fairly... is a longish chapter and they seem to be a little more around that for the foreseeable future. Leading his long wagon treks from winter quarters through unbelievable hazards with many losses of lives and many plantings of dead bodies along the way from the known to the unknown to the Great Salt Basin where nothing grew and there had been not only deaths of human saints but sometimes of horses and cattle bitten by serpents for whose venom the anodyne provided by Brigham Young had not always worked. Moses and Jacob had nearly perished because of overwork. The leader had shown his desire to be at all times the untrammeled, untrampled leader who, when once a decision had been given to him in the name of God, he was unable and unwilling 
to put up with the bickerings of the twelve loyal apostles accompanying him to the distant prospect. It was his insistence that he desired to keep his twelve apostles in his pockets, where he kept his little pet ones, his wives and children, as he also kept orphans, including children whose fathers and mothers had been slain and who had been left to starve and thirst in a desert, where no bread was and no water was. According to Karl Marx, who understood with his partner, Frederick Ingalls, the power which supernatural agencies exploded and exploding myths held over communitarian, irrational imagination, when it still refused to yield to scientific rational materialism, the Mormon Bible was a document that made no common sense at all. At a time when the ex-prison bird Bittling was attempting to be the main voice of German communitarianism in America, but still could establish and maintain no real following, and when, upon the other hand, Etienne Cabet was the chief head of France's communitarianism, it did seem that both were doomed to fail in either an immediate or prolonged attempt to pave the way by force of their shining but individualistic example to the way for the enactment of the new social gospel according to their lights, certainly not only as viewed by Marx and Engels, neither of whom would wish to wind up in a crazy patchwork utopian tent show stalled in a sea of mud and sand somewhere off history's road, which was the road to be taken by Marx and Engels when the times were right. Little or nothing could be done in Nicaria by a declaration overnight. When after the Texas debacle, half of the survivors of yellow fever and other ills had returned to France, they had impatiently wished to retrieve the investments that they had lost by falling for the schematic promises, schematic? Schematic promises of a vast promised land, and they had brought suit against Quebec for fraud. The little Icaria of the French rationalists, already shattered into fragments by debacle in Texas, had settled in Illinois, among the broken ruins of the once beautiful city strewn around in fragments after the murder of President Joseph Smith with his bird tongues and angel tongues and after the flight of President Brigham Young with his bird tongues and angel tongues and had had no way of being unified in harmony and economy in the beginning, which in a psychological as well as a physical sense was never the pure beginning. Vitling had hoped, in spite of melancholy forebodings, to join with Etienne Cabet, Etienne, Etienne, I don't know how to do French either, et, the accents on the E, Etienne Cabet, in the already blasted, ruined Icarian community at the Mormon-haunted Nauvoo, but was never able to hitch up with him before he and about 200 followers were forced to take flight to St. Louis, the great riverport, where he who had placed faith in the goodness of man's heart was to die of a broken heart without realization of his dreams of the perfect millennial egg out of which his version of the secular socialism, socialism should be born. President Vitling had found what was to be only a delusional peace reigning among the Icarian socialist perfectionists in the blood-drenched Nauvoo where, after all the sufferings that had been endured by the Mormons, the orchard boughs and the meadows should have cried out with spectral voices in memory of murder, murder most foul and of neither wild birds nor domestic fowl, but of men and women and children who had worshipped the gods of sun and moon. There was only a delusional harmony and economy among the Icarian followers who, during the time in which President Cabet was involved in the trial against him for fraud, which he was ultimately to win, were living under a French constitution, which provided for him as the elected head of for one year and four ministers and many committees and many voices and many meetings to supervise the administration of the fictional voyage et aventure de Lord William Carastal in Icare, traduit de la Anglais de France, 
Frances Adams. Because you know, I don't speak French. I know Marguerite Young did. Before coming to America when he was 60 years old, the founder of the Icarians, the utopia-minded lawyer who had practiced at the bar until 1820, when he had become a leader in the Carabinieri and Attorney General of Corsica, but had been dismissed from that high office for attacking the government in his history of the revolution in 1830, and later when elected to the French legislature, had been pros prosecuted for his criticism of the state and had been driven into exile in England in 1834, had come under the magnetic influence of Robert Owen of the Busted New Harmony, who had inspired in him his desire to search for the golden fleece that would be a moneyless society. According to his fictional voyage to Icaria, which had supposedly taken place in 1836, and which had attempted to make utopia palatable by draping over its political, moral, and economic abstractions, the thin fleece of a tale of romantic love, perhaps just some old embroidered bridal shroud, or an old lace curtain, or an old lace tablecloth, such as was used by farmers to protect gooseberry bushes from the winter frost in the dying or dead time of the year, saw Francis Adams and the youthful Lord William Caristall had found that rarest of all things in the age of quest for a better world, a millennial communitarian society, like a flying island, had not only arrived, but had lived through many threats, many storms, and had not departed this life. The Icar who had found that the utopian family communalism was revered by his Icarian followers as if he were the spirit of a god and not merely a great so socialist engineer who had laid out his family communitarian and communal society according to the correct principles, maps, charts, knowledge of living or dead statistics, which he had devised and which he would have successfully carried out if instead of coming to a fruitful land he had set his city down upon a wide sea of grass where nothing grew but grass or upon a sea of sand strewn with the skulls of dead animals. Dinaros had explained to the inquiring travelers that the Icarian communitarians were living in a system founded upon the assumption that man was distinguished from all other living beings by his reason, his perfectibility, and his sociability, without which, as, as past experience had already shown, happiness could not exist. The Icarian family communitarians were members of a larger single family governed by laws intended to establish absolute equality in all cases where equality was not materially impossible. All partners in this cooperative communal community shared all personal goods, all products of land and industry, and a single social capital which belonged indivisibly to the people in that kind of communal communitarianism, which had always been dismissed as an impossibility, but was here shown to be a possibility, a thing that had been put into practice. The Icarian associationists all had trades, and worked the same number of hours and used their intelligence, should one call it gray matter or golden matter, to make their labor as brief as possible and varied and agreeable and safe. As the Republican of the community was the sole owner of everything and determined what workshops and stores and dwelling places should be built, and as the land which was chosen for plowing by the plowman was also chosen by the government which represented all, every family and every citizen was provided with food, clothing, lodging, and pleasure. The Acarian Republic being also the sole owner of all horses and carriages and hotels, it had exacted no monetary charge from travelers from the outside world for food within these borders and transport from place to place in beds. Beds which could not have been in the mud or under the mud, one may guess, as some were in the world ruled by iron kings, coal kings, steel kings, who had no care for the progeny of the poor. Buying and selling were completely useless and fictitious fact to the Icarians. 
Everything which transpired in Icaria transpired in public and was discussed by all inhabitants who lived according to those facts of life which they did not permit to be shrouded by mystery or mystification or ambivalence of any kind, and which were always verified or verifiable by statistics, statistics, statistics distributed free. Children were protected not only from their birth, but during their mother's pregnancy, for which young couples have been prepared by reading of books on anatomy and other subjects of concern for the welfare of the little ones while they were in the womb, and in all probability were reading little books as they dreamed of being born alive and not dead, torn into bloody hunks and strewn over orchards and fields and aisles of reeds. Members of the family and several midwives were eyewitnesses to every birth which took place in this communal acaria. The mothers always gave milk from their breasts to their own children, if possible. The Icarian children were the most perfect in the world, and thus it could be easily seen that they were very different from the dwarfed children who worked in capitalistic mills and mines and died without ever seeing the light of the sun. At an early age, the children of the Icarians in that French tradition were taught to read and write and read aloud and declaim. Their handwriting, which they spelled out with their little quill pens, was legible and clear and neat, although their language is not the general language recognized by others in the outside world. Their language was so regular and easy and devoid of the burden of unnecessary intricate grammatical structure that after about a year of learning at their mother's breasts and from a little book called The Children's Friend, they were able to make replies to those who questioned them and to ask questions of those who replied and to send their letters to absent members of the carrying family. Every game they played was an act of learning and every act of learning was a game. Words in the imaginary carrier were spelled as they sounded and thus contained no useless letters by which to bar the children's way as did the old man river mississippi by which the real acarians had come to the ghost-haunted nauvoo where had been the worshippers of the gods of the moon and sun above the many waters of the flood which as they staggered along and went whichever way they would bore a name crossed by double s's like sandbars and suddenly apparitional isles of reeds as mud buried some settlements along its low-lying shores and unburied others president vitling who was fresh from helping to build the beaver dam at communia and who had felt a sense of inner triumph accompanied by dark forebodings of despair, had found that the families had been assigned space furnished by sticks of that which surely must have been non-Stygian furniture, and he had also found that to each family head had been allowed a garden for the growing of apple and peach and plum and pear trees and berry bushes and melons and corn and beans and peas, or whatever they desired for their own use or desired to sell for coins to non-communitarians so that they might have money for their sugar and their coffee and tobacco for their pipes. The whiskey that was provided free from this distillery was good and probably, even if not mixed with bee balm or nepenthean remedies, was much needed in the freezing winter of ice gales and snowstorms, making all things appear twice their size. Behind the ruins of the temples to the gods of sun and moon and stars, the Icarians had erected a long two-story house with a kitchen and an L where the community cooking was done, and there was also a long hall where most of the members preferred to take their meals and gather on Sundays for musical concerts harps and horns and violins and theatricals and puppet shows and discussions of socialism, what it was or would be when it came as their absent Icar had promised. While upstairs, there were private quarters for families, their number altogether twenty, ten on each side of a long gallery, and evidently not one door of illusion opening onto the great abyss which had been Joseph Smith's concern, not one for the mysteriously cloaked traveler, which would be the angel Moroni in disguise. While the children of the Icarians were taken from their parents at the age of two to be educated at the leftover Mormon or Owenite or, four, or Fourierite equivalent 
of the Little Red Schoolhouse or the Little Red Book could not have been Etienne Cabet's equivalent of McGuffey's nor a prophetic rendering of the materialistic determinism of Marx and Engels as it filtered through a sieve. The children who had passed beyond the suckling state were growing up with some detachment from their immediate families in rehearsal for their becoming members of one great happy family, which should be that of the human race, were never very happy in their isolated state except for the Sunday afternoons when they visited their parents in their homes. But the mothers and fathers were apparently happy with this arrangement. What the lonely bachelor brother Vitling had observed was that the women of Nauvoo were not expected to join with the plowmen as plowwomen in the fields as in the German colonies of Ebenezer and Zoar, and thus, when there were never enough hands with which to assure that there would be bread for all in the harvest time, which came for grain as it would some day come for most men, the numbers of hands were reduced. A German pietist commune had been established under the leadership of Joseph Bimmler, who, escaping from the rationalism of the established Lutheran Church of Württemberg in August 1817, had taken flight with his followers to America, where they would establish their own millennial city along upon a land spread of fifty-five acres across uh, fifty upon a land spread of fifty-five hundred acres along the Tuscarawas River in Ohio, where there might be no other settlement for miles, or it might be blotted out by snow and ice. Okay, wait a second, I gotta go back to this. So when he found out that the women do not plow the fields the same as the men do, or the same as the men do in other German colonies, so when there weren't, wasn't enough hands at harvest time and there wasn't enough bread, then the numbers of hands were reduced. So I don't know what that means. That means that, like, okay, women didn't eat. <laughs> like, they didn't feed the women. So much is having for, so much for having enough food for all. Or, that's an, or, or people don't starved. Or people died. Hmm, that's interesting. I don't know. They had agreed to pay out the purchase price by long-distance payments over a period stretching out to 15 years, when less gold or silver would be paid out unless hoary Gabriel or a Gabriel sweet-smelling, as flowers should already have blown his horn, great or small, and what if he should foreclose the last mortgage upon this property of earth just when the last payment should be made? They had called the place Zoar, meaning of place of refuge, after the Zoar in which, according to the biblical account, Lot and his wife and daughters had taken refuge. The ox that was used for work in the fields was something like that beast of burden who was equipped with two horns, one of which was the male and the other of which the female, uh, other of which was the female, and both of which were in harmony doing God's work and not the devil's work. Celibacy had been considered to be upon a higher pinnacle of being than married love. It had been only after the original Zohar had gotten onto its feet in an economic sense that there had been restored, after the prevalence of cold limb celibacy up until about 1830 or shortly afterward, lost paradise of conjugal bliss, permitting the joinings of the previously unjoined inhabitants for the beginning of children. Only when there were enough cradles filled with corn to fill not only big mouths but little mouths, and enough left over to sell to strangers passing through, and there was enough flour produced in the flour mills for the baking of bread for the inhabitants of Zoar, this place of refuge, enough bags of flour to sell to mysterious travelers, gentlemen or bums, who, when they passed beyond Zoar, might bake their own bread somewhere along the side of the road, <clears throat> from here to there. It would be long remembered at the age when water travel had seen the golden promise. Although the barges which walked on water were already being threatened by the barges which walked on land, that it was the Zorites, the people dwelling apart, who under the directions, direction of President Bimler, 
had contracted to build that part of the Ohio Erie Canal that crossed over their flowering land spread in the Tuscawaras Valley, and as a matter of fact, not far from the future as yet unfounded Massillon, I know where that is, with its nearby limestone quarry, from which in the midst of a surrounding, well, Massillon's up by Canton, from which in the midst of a surrounding country made historical by numerous Moravian missionary settlements would someday see the rising up of the somewhat revolutionary crank general Jacob S. Coxey, a prosperous gentleman who with the unrespectable Carl Brown and his army of Christ would lead the raggedly unemployed to Washington to demand employment by the laying down of free roads and to demand by metallism and other balms and whose place of habitation where he quarried and raised beautiful mares and stallions to seed them from seeds of their posterity, had been named by Mrs. James Duncan, the wife of one of its founders, after the French bishop, whose distinction was that he had opened the funeral oration for Louis the Fourteenth with the infamously famous sentence, Du seul est grand, or as the English would later say, God alone is great. And so are the dream of the New Jerusalem was symbolized by the beautiful community garden, which to become a sinosure for eyes of commercial or utopian travelers, imitated or tried to actualize New Jerusalem as described in the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation. Occupying an entire square in Zoar, the garden had been laid out by Zoar's spiritual and material head in consultation with other trustees and God's plan, which was a geometric plan, a square in which there was a center surrounded by three concentric circles, and from the third, twelve pathways radiating outward, whether as long rays of sunlight or long rays of shadow, to show the paths which might lead not merely to a curbstone to all those who, by following this order, avoided the roaring chaos of the old mistaken world. In the center was a huge Norway spruce, which, with circling its roots, a low hedge, which, made of arbor vitae, meaning the tree of life, was for the Soarites, the tree of heaven. Twelve evergreen juniper trees, with cones gleaming like blueberries, are eyes circled in the third's concentric circle, which stood for the twelve apostles of Christ. Wow, who knew that the U.S. was filled with such batshit crazy religions, utopias. I mean, now, okay, this is why the history isn't taught in schools. This is why nobody talks about this in schools. Like, I knew there was, because I lived in New Mexico, and there's uh, one famous one, like, they had a whole angel cosmology that they lived by in New Mexico and it was a utopia that you know so like I'd heard about these but I thought they were like fringe stuff like every once in a while excuse me but there was a lot of them in the U.S. so it was basically radicals who left Europe uh, exterminated indigenous you know committed genocide against indigenous nations enslaved people and wanted to claim that they were building a utopia this outright ludicrous. That is so hilarious. Oh, and I gotta participate in the blue sky stuff today. Okay. So. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. A whole new side to a U.S. history that nobody talks about. <sighs> Only Margaret Young. Alrighty. Thanks for listening. Hope you are well wherever you are. And bye.